What does it take to create positive change as a young Canadian? Let's find out with today's guest, Rick Mercer. Welcome to another episode of Question Everything, where we connect young leaders with experts in entrepreneurship, publishing, and design. I'm your host, Carly Sotis, and today I'm speaking with Rick Mercer. Rick is the host of the Rick Mercer Report on CBC, which is going into its 14th season this fall. Rick grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland, and got his start at CBC when he was only 17. Rick went on to become one of the creators of This Hour Has 22 Minutes, where he developed his famous rants and comedy segment, Talking to Americans. In today's episode, Rick shares the story of how he got his first job with CBC while he was working as a dishwasher, and reflects on how the media landscape has changed and presented new challenges for young people entering the industry today. Rick shares the most valuable lesson he's learned from interviewing and celebrating leaders from across the country, and discusses why he's more optimistic about politics and the level of change that young Canadians are creating. Today we're recording from the patio of Allen's Restaurant in Toronto, so I apologize in advance for any background noise from the birds or planes overhead. But thank you so much for being with us today, Rick. Thank you for having me. Now, when you were first starting out your career, before this hour has 22 minutes, before the Mercer Report, you created a one-man show that you toured across Canada, which is a pretty bold thing to do. I'm wondering what inspired you to get started on that show. Um, I did tour across Canada, and that was a fluke. (laughs) I can talk about that a little later on, but... Why I did the one-man show, I was in a comedy troupe, uh, we were doing comedy, I, I liked the notion, I didn't feel like my high suit was doing sketch comedy, like a lot of, well, the, peop, the other people in my troupe, actually, I thought they were all better sketch performers than I was, and I saw the one-man show format as something that was suited to what I thought my high suit was, which was doing political commentary and talking versus and storytelling versus you know putting on wigs and hats and uh, and playing great comedic characters which I didn't really feel was my high suit um, I was angry is the is the other motivation what it were was, you angry about well the show it was called show me the button I'll push it or Charles Lynch must die was about the Meech Lake Accord. Now, most of your listeners won't remember the Meech Lake Accord, and unless they happen to study political science, they probably have never heard of it. But it was a constitutional crisis in Canada, somewhat of a constitutional crisis, that led to a referendum. But during the middle of this constitutional crisis, it was one of these situations where every province had to agree, and Newfoundland was threatening to withdraw its agreement. And this... This fellow, Charles Lynch, wrote a column that said, if push comes to shove, in order to save Quebec, we can throw Newfoundland out. So as a young Newfoundlander, I was incensed. And uh, this is what the one-man show was about. And it was bold in the sense that I had no business doing a one-man show. I, had no, I didn't have the skill set, but basically I stood on stage and yelled about politics for an hour, which is not, you know, what most people going to the theater want to see. <laughs> they like to tone it down occasionally, you know, peaks and valleys, not just ar 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 ar. But uh, that's what I did, and it was in Ottawa, and I was very lucky. Charles Lynch himself came to the show. Wow. He loved the show, and then he declared that I w- he was the Sol- Solomon Rushdie of of Newfoundland, and uh, so he loved it. 
and we ended up debating on television and it made the show quite famous people were kind of intrigued at this saucy 18 19 year old yelling at this very older man well-respected journalist former war correspondent former head of southern news and we were getting in these yelling matches on television and uh and that led to me bringing the show right across the country wow what were some of the biggest challenges you faced while putting on that show you know it's interesting i think the format of this series of interviews is is how people who are established got to where they are so people of your generation can learn from that i often wonder all the things that i did to get where i am today if that has any relevance at all mm. to the next generation coming along it was just such a very different time i mean the media landscape changes so quickly and in my lifetime, it's changed so quickly. One of the things, you know, I wanted to work in television. I went into the theater in order to get on television. You talk to most people on television who started in the theater, they will, they will say, but I really love the theater. And I would go back in a heartbeat. I'm not that guy. I got into the theater to get for on television. television. I was putting television on stage, basically. That, it was all an audition for television. But... It was so hard to make anything back then. Like when I had a comedy troupe, I don't mean to bore you with, oh, in my days we had to walk <laughs> uphill backwards twice. But, but literally, you know, we wanted to do a sketch and show it. So we had to go buy film and find someone who could operate a film camera, which was hard, and then find someone to edit, which was hard. And it cost us like $500, which was a huge <laughs> amount of money. And then we played it on a white wall in front of our friends. That's the way we did it. So the idea that when we were that age that we would have iPhones is mind-blowing to me. I think that's very, very exciting. And I also think... It makes it harder at the same time, For sure. if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much being produced and created. There's so much content out there. So I don't know how you get seen. You know, people go, oh, it'll go viral. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, when there's 10,000 clips, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously they're not all going to go viral. I'm wondering, well, the story of how you got started at CBC is quite interesting. Could you tell listeners who maybe haven't heard the story of the man at the restaurant? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So you know that story. Well, I was, uh, I was a dishwasher, and I was still doing the comedy business. And uh, actually, that's, the, that's how I started doing commentary. So I was a dishwasher, and there was this fellow who was uh, a well-heeled guy. He used to come in. I always remember he wore, like, you know, fancy gloves, like that kind of guy. Not a lot of those around St. John's Newfoundland <laughs> at the time. And uh, anyway, he was a radio producer at the CBC. And there used to be uh, a slot for commentary on the CBC. And my father and I used to bond over that because he would be driving me to school and the commentator would come on and we'd have to listen. And then Dad would talk about how what an idiot that commentator was. <laughs> so I thought, you know what, I could do that. I could do that. So I kept I kept asking the guy if I could do it. And he was like, no, no. And it was kind of like, why are you even talking to me, quite frankly? Because, like, there I am. I was, like, 17 years old washing dishes. And I'm saying, hey, you, in line for the table, which, you know, you're not even supposed to talk to those people. <laughs> let me do it. Let me do it. And uh, anyway, to the jigs and the reels, um, he always kept saying no, and then someone bailed or did a commentary that was not fit for radio or something, and they needed someone, and I guess this guy gave me a shot, wow. and why it worked was I had a deep voice, and nobody mentioned 
that I was 17, 17. years old because who wants to listen to a commentator, you know, a com- mm-hmm. political commentary about provincial affairs from a 17 year old unless it's one of those. And now the teen view, which I didn't do. Anyway, and it turned out uh, I was good at it, or at least I would do it for the $65, I think, that I would get paid for it. And so that's where I started to develop the rant. I should mention, you know, when I was young, the CBC was there. You could do things like that at the CBC. You know, the CBC has changed so much. I doubt they, they hire anyone to do anything now. So again, that's an opportunity that was there for me that's not afforded to any young person today, I don't think. But to have the courage to ask him and keep asking, is that something that you've always had in you? Is that drive? Maybe. You know, I've often thought when I did the one-man show that it was only because I was at that point in my life, because had I had any more information, I would never have done that one-man show, because it was really the boldness of youth. And I just went for it. I didn't stop and think, well, hang on. I'm going to go to another city and stand on stage for 90 minutes or 65 minutes or whatever it was. Like, what am I going to say? I, you know, if someone asked me to do a one-man show next week or next year, I don't know if I would do it because it's a lot of work and it's hard and it takes. And uh, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have done it back then. So I guess I was bold. And in your work, it requires you to cover a lot of really difficult subject matter, but you always seem to have a way of finding the light side of things or the humor. And I'm wondering if you've always had that skill as well. When I like talking to people more than anything. I, I always enjoy talking to people. And, uh, you know, I know that that's not unique. Lots of people like to talk to people. But I've never had a problem in situations that many people do have a problem with you know I've had like so many Paralympians on the show over the years and uh, you know they always say they appreciate the way that I talk to people with disabilities or people who are differently abled or about their disability and about their sport and about their life and I it's not like I follow a rule book I've just never I've never thought about it I just talk to them the way I talk to you I guess and the same can go for any situation. I mean, I don't, I don't consider it a difficult situation. Some people are hemming and hawing and wondering, oh my God, I better not mention that he's missing a leg. Or I think, well, if there's no leg there, I guess it's okay to mention it. <laughs> yeah. You've interviewed so many different people from across the country, and I'm wondering what some of the most important things you've learned from, from speaking with so many different people. Everyone has a story to tell. And thank God, because when I first started out with the Mercer Report and it became a hit, I was terrified that we were going to run out of stories. And now I believe that if there's, you know, say there's 35 million Canadians, I can make a story out of 20 million of them. So now I don't worry about running out of stories. Everyone has something to tell. Everything, everyone has a story, um, although sometimes they may not be aware of it. So then that's my job to get that story. The philosophy behind my show is we celebrate so if I'm going to your neck of the woods and exploring what you do with you I'm there to celebrate it and there to make you look at your your very best and uh, that's that's what I do and uh, I've learned that that opens doors I'm wondering I've been watching the Mercer Report with my family for as long as I can remember and it's really got me engaged in politics from a young age and I'm wondering for young Canadians who are listening to this program what do you think are some of the things that they can do to create change when they're feeling discouraged about the things that you talk about on your show? Uh, that 
uh, that makes me so happy that you both watch the show and you watch the show with your parents because I didn't set out to create a show that people would watch with their parents. But uh, it's like because, that bonding experience you were talking about with your dad. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know that's. In the olden days, way back when, families had to watch TV together because there was only one in the house and there was only three channels. So they had to fight it out amongst themselves what <laughs> they were watching. So that was quite common. Of course, as you know, it, it hardly ever happens now because everyone has their own tablets and that's just the way it is. But uh, I'm very proud of that fact that, uh, you know, so many people will say, it's well, it's the only time I sit in a room with my father or it's people will say it's the only time my kid will, you know, watch anything with me. I think that's great. I've seen I've seen real sea change in how young people are becoming engaged lately, and uh, I feel really good about it. I understand that young people aren't that interested in the in conventional politics. One thing I've noticed, you know, the best and the brightest of young people who are interested in politics and creating change, they used to go to Ottawa and work for a political party. Now I notice they go downtown and get involved in municipal politics that's where the best and the brightest are going they're no longer going to Ottawa because Ottawa is not seen as a place that creates great change that said in the last election more young people turned out to vote than ever before and I believe that uh, that's going to change everything because quite frankly none of the parties really invested that much energy or time in engaging young people. It was all lip service because it sounded nice. They'd say, you know, the young people are our most important natural resource. But it was all BS. No one ever really believed that. And plus they didn't care what you thought because they knew that even the loudest and the and most aggressive the people wanting change wouldn't bother showing up to vote on election day. And quite frankly, that was the truth for a very long time. This last election scared all of the parties. Mm-hmm. Even the liberals who, you know, most people think did the best. But uh, now they're going to actually have to pay attention to what young people want. Mm-hmm. Have you become more cynical or optimistic about things? It sounds like you become more optimistic. I used to be. Uh, I, I went through a period where I was cynical. But I'm very much an optimist right now. I'm an optimist, uh, especially when it comes to you know the younger generation. Because, like I say, I do see sea change. I see them involved in wanting change. I see them becoming active. I mean, part of, part of what changed my point of view was on my show you know we do the spread the net student challenge and that's been a real eye-opener because I didn't really expect much of a response I thought there would be a small response but I didn't think there would be a huge response I didn't think that young people would necessarily embrace raising money for anti-malaria bed nets for other young people on the other side of the world and uh, and yet they do year after year after year and you know, it's it's under the guise of a silly contest, but everyone who enters knows they probably won't win because there's always going to be a bigger university or a you know a wealthier school, two provinces over, two towns over, and yet they still take part. And it's really uh, it's it's opened my eyes to the fact that young people really do want to be engaged. And I guess for a while I was cynic because I always thought, well, if you're engaged, that means you go out and join a political party. Well, young people just. They don't need to do that. There's other things that they can do. There's other movements that they can get involved in. So I think that was a case of me not really understanding where young people's minds were. Why have you never run? Well, because I have a job, for starters, (laughs) and I'm not really ready to make the sacrifice. Second, but the truth is I've always been 
interested in politics. It's always been my sport. I do love politics. I love it. And it's why I can speak with authority about politics because I'm sincere in my affection for it. Just like if you're going to be a baseball writer, you better love baseball. Even if you're going to be highly critical of baseball, you got to love it. You can't fake that stuff. And if you're a baseball writer or a baseball fan, you always have a secret fantasy of that they're going to call you up and say, we need, you know, we need you, you, you to pitch for the Yankees. Okay, I'm in. So as, as someone who's always been obsessed with politics, I've all, always, in the back of my mind, thought, well, maybe that's something I'll do. But uh, I have less of an interest in doing that now than I probably have ever had. Uh, not saying that I would never do it, but... Uh, I don't. I just simply because I don't think it's a, an occupation that I would be particularly good at, and why bother if you're not going to be, you know, good at it or the best at it? I'd be great at the showbiz part. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the showbiz part. I have that part down. <laughs> but I'd like to move away from a system where, like, someone who can, you know, can get elected just because they, you know, understand reality television or yeah. can tell a joke. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I am at a complete and utter loss as to what is happening in the United States. I can't even begin to understand what is happening to the Republican Party. How is it that the party of Eisenhower, the party of Abraham Lincoln, has become the plaything for the host of the Miss Universe beauty pageant? And how is it possible that the more outrageous Donald Trump becomes, the higher his numbers go? I don't get it. It is the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen in my entire life. But I'm getting very tired of people who say that, oh, because of Donald Trump, American politics has become like reality TV. Not true. Reality TV is not this stupid. Although I wouldn't be surprised if Donald Trump chose Honey Boo Boo as his running mate. What's truly disturbing is that we in Canada are not immune to this behavior. Ten days ago, Conservatives from all over Canada gathered in Ottawa for the Manning Conference. There was one subject on their mind, who would be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada? And who got all the attention? Who was the big star? Kevin O'Leary from the Dragon's Den. A man whose entire shtick is that money is a religion. And the more outrageous he became, the more they loved him. It's embarrassing. He's up here in Canada doing Donald Trump's act, not as well, and it's working. He's like a Rod Stewart impersonator. Big crowds in small towns only. But thanks to Kevin O'Leary, I now relate to those Americans who say that if Trump becomes president, they want to move to Canada. Because if Trump becomes president and Kevin O'Leary becomes prime minister, I want to leave the planet. Seriously, I would rather live in a bubble on Mars and eat potatoes grown in my own poo. Trump and O'Leary, stop the world. I want to get off. That was Rick Mercer's rant about Trump and O'Leary from March 8, 2016. For more of Rick's rants, tune into CBC Television this October for the 14th season of The Rick Mercer Report. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Question Everything. I'm your host, Carly Sotis, and each week we bring you inspiration and insights from creative minds and experts in entrepreneurship, publishing, and design. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can download the show at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at citr.ca.